God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for your mercies to us and your son and his life, his teaching, his sacrifice for his church. We'd ask that you would bless us in it. And in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we're in Luke 13, all of the chapter, 1 through 35. It's got a series of events that Luke has pieced together in a uh, in a beneficial way. Some of them are teaching things that can be covered individually. Uh, you could preach a sermon out of one of these paragraphs just fine. And it comes out of a situation let's see where's Luke? It's in the Bible somewhere. The Lord had been talking to a large group of people, a multitude, and he gave them some comments about the end. And in the end of this message, that's where verse 1 occurs. There were some present at that very time. So, out of that big multitude. Now it breaks apart, the rest of this chapter breaks apart to a synagogue moment in verse 10. Um, and, uh, and then what follows out of that. So it's not all one uh, historic moment. But initially, this comes if you want to go back and read chapter 12 of Luke, if you think it would be helpful. Well, this, well these audience members make a comment to Christ. There were some present at that very time who told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And that happened. We, we, we don't have this historic moment recorded in any of the Jewish historians or Roman historians, but moments like this. If you read through Pilate's career, there was always some potential insurrection being put down very aggressively by, by Pilate. And, uh, and it seems in this moment that we don't know of historically, either it was in the temple or on the way to the temple that their sacrifices and they were sort of slaughtered together. And so their blood and the sheep's blood got mixed. And he answered them. He, they tell him the story of this calamity. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered thus? Now that is, you're sitting around with some friends who are spiritually in tune with you, and something happens, like Louisiana floods, again. Or AIDS, back in the day, back in the 90s and 80s. Or an earthquake in Turkey, thousands die. Tsunami in, in Southeast Asia. And it, it was one of the conversation points, just like people here in this crowd, hey, did you hear about all those Galileans that Pilate killed, slaughtered them on their way to the temple? And Jesus poses the question, do you think they were worse sinners? Now, there are two schools of thought in a modern Christianity, evangelical Christianity, 
One is to man up and go, yep, God was punishing something. This town. This calamity. I, I knew people who suggested that 9-11 was God's judgment on New York. Those are the more manly ones. Now, I approve of manliness, as you can well imagine. But there are other people who go, oh my gosh, how embarrassing that Christians would start suggesting that a calamity happening is God's judgment. Now, but all of that is different than what Jesus does with this. He goes, do you think they were worse sinners than the other guys? He goes, I tell you, no. But then he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's like, no, of course not, but thanks for the image of absolute destruction and slaughter because I want you to be thinking about you and absolute destruction and slaughter. Oh, not because I thought, not because I thought that there was a, um, a moral imperative that God wipe out the Galileans on the way to the temple. We like to talk about the moral equity of the moment where look at those people in this part of the world. And he then gives another illustration. I tell you, but unless you you will all likewise perish, or those 18 upon whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, No, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, he's telling you yes and no at the same time. He's saying, and for a reason, he's saying, don't be thinking about their calamity and whatever sin may have brought it to pass, because in both cases he says, no, I don't think they were great sinners. But frankly, it's a great image for someone who is a sinner to think about. Because what he is saying is not, you will likewise die, because we know we all die. Big whoop. Of course, we all die. He is saying, we will all die in the same manner as these. When he says likewise perish, it means perish like them, not just happen to be mortal. So you have two awful images. One of being slaughtered by Roman troops so bad that they can't tell the sheep blood from your blood. And other the collapse of a big tower on top of you. So if someone said to you, do you think that uh, 9-11 was God's wrath in New York? No. But unless you repent, that's your end. That's, That's what he's saying. Unless you repent, that's the kind of death you're going to enjoy. It's very vivid to us, we, those of us who remember it happening. Very vivid. The 3,000 that died, you saw her- heroism, you saw people who deserved it, people who didn't deserve it, but if Jesus were asked the question on, the, on whom the twin towers of New York fell, were they greater sinner? No. But that's not the end of the question. Images of calamity are for your meditation about you.
unless you repent, unless you repent. Now, it is good, you say, is this what you're, you're taking your opportunity to say hard things? Oh yeah. We need to remember that calamity is not something we want. I shouldn't be spending my time trying to analyze God's purposes in a calamity because calamity can exist. We can look at Job, right? He had calamity. All of his kids die, loses everything, sits on an ash heap scraping boils from his body and his wife, God bless her, says, why don't you curse God and die? So we'd say, yeah, righteous man. So righteous that God was bragging to Satan about how righteous he was. So we have no question that Job was righteous. And calamity happened. So in your argument, cosmologically, about a bad thing that happened in the world, you'll have those two camps. Well, God, does calamity fall a city and also lie the Lord have caused it? And you can say, well, look about Job. What about righteous Job? Jesus knows that too. He has created the two categories here on the page. They were not greater sinners. The Galileans were the 18 upon whom the tower fell. But those who are needing to repent, that's the kind of end they should expect. I mean, you should, if, if you wanted to parse it out for yourself, what kind of death I'm 61. And so I can see it from here. Some of you are very young, can't even process what it's going to mean, but you start actually counting the day. The days go by like lightning, everything hurts. Um, you know, you'd, be, you'd be dead tomorrow, easily. And everybody goes, oh, 61, a little early, but. But I want you to think, I like you thinking about your death. And I want you this morning thinking about the kind of death you wouldn't like to die. You know, suicide. Of somebody else, like a bomber. You don't want to be blown up. You don't want to be knifed on the street in the Philippines. You don't want to have to make a decision at the top of a skyscraper of how you're going to die, because you're going to die. You want that? But he wants you to meditate. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. You will die like this. So it introduces some, some difficult thoughts. He goes on to say in verse 6, And behold, and he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Lo, these three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. <coughs> Why should it use up the ground? I believe, if I remember correctly, correct me, those of you who are King James people. Why cumbereth it the ground? I don't know if that's correct, but I think that's what I remember the King James saying. Which is a nice, a nice phrasing. Why should it use up the ground? God has been patient. The, the, the vine dresser 
And the owner of the field, we've been patient. Three years, I've been coming back to this tree and no figs on it. This is pointless. The parable is in response. The parable is in response to what he just said to them. You need to repent. Somebody goes, well, of what? I have kept the law. I have not. I have honored the Sabbath day. I have, what else have, could you have you done? Anybody volunteer some goodness here? We, uh, I have not drunk to excess. I have not uh, voted Democratic. I know some of you do, so don't worry about it. Or Republican. Or Libertarian. We've got to keep everybody in here. What does the, the owner of the vineyard want off his tree? He wants fruit, for heaven's sake. He's waited three years for fruit. There isn't any fruit off his tree. Looks like it's time that the calamity that befell the Galileans, the calamity that fell the people who the tower fell on, is about to fall on this fig tree. And the reason it's about to fall on this fig tree is because it doesn't bear fruit. And he answered him, divine dresser answered the owner, let it alone, sir, this year also. Till I dig about it and put on manure. I mean, there's a, there is a Facebook waiting to happen. Because you, you know what manure is? Poop. And when you're in, because people are going to think, if you, if you want to be the kind of charming pastor, you've got to pick people up, you know, in their brokenness. I hate, hate, hate brokenness as a concept and in people you don't get to be broken knock it off the Lord says straighten up repent fly right whatever you want to call it you don't get an excuse no excuse you don't get to be broken someone's gonna look at this and say you know those times like this footprints those times when you were in deep poop that was the Lord trying to fertilize you. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't think so much. But you'll work with that. You can work with that. Let me dig about it. Till up the soil. Add some amend soil amendments. Is that what they're called? Soil amendments. Euphemism. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. Because that's what we're waiting for. We're not being patient because, you know, patience is endless. Because it's not endless. The patience of the owner of the field was up. And the vine dresser said, one more year. And then it would be up for him. Because if it were up, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The calamity that befell the Galileans will fall on this tree for not bearing fruit. Now, an event happens here in verse 10. He's been teaching up to this point. 
Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had the spirit of infirmity for 18 years. As an aside, I want you to think in terms of a spirit of infirmity. She didn't have a back problem. It was evidenced in a back problem. She could not fully, she was bent over and she could not fully straighten herself. Ran into a woman I've known for many years. She's now in her gazillions, I think, 90s. And she's completely bent over, completely bent over. So you know that happens, and we've got materialist explanations for it, but the Luke, who is a physician, by the way, says this is the spirit of infirmity that had her bent over. I want you to consider for a moment, not that all physical ailments are spiritual problems, but this one was. And when Jesus saw her, he called her and said to her, Woman, are you freed from your infirmity? You are freed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands upon her, and immediately she was made straight, and she praised God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his ass from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said this, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Now, that little moment, that little moment is another example, just like you were told of the fig tree in the parable. You were told of repentance in the direct teaching, then in the parable you were told about the need for fruit. And in here, this uh, moment... He has goodness laid out. Simple goodness. Now, apart from whether or not the metaphysics of her circumstance was causing her ailment, don't be cha- you, I want you to think about that in some moments because some of you have ailments, I'm sure, that are a result of how you stand before the Lord. But that's not the point of the passage. It's not the point of the passage that it was a spirit of infirmity or that Satan bound her. That's in the text. Deal with it in your free time. But what's the point here? Is the indignance of the ruler of the synagogue. Indignant. Now, I've been in the Christian biz for quite a while. It's not much of a business. It's not real profitable. But you can count on one thing. Tragically, not repentance. Indignance is what you can count on. You you get a harvest of the indignant all the time. I mean, people who don't like what you say. Not a Christian situation, but up in Canada, you know, plague be upon them. They just fined a comedian $42,000 for telling a joke some people didn't like. Because they were indignant that he made fun of something. And that's coming to Moscow. That's coming to U.S. That's coming to All Souls Christian. There will be some sort of monitor from the county government in the back that if you say something, you ought not say. But some of we don't have to wait for that because some of you don't like talk of repentance. 
it seems so old, seems so primitive, kind of like religion, not just where you get to put the coexist bumper sticker on your car and, and just say, and I choose the Christian path, and I think Jesus said some wonderful things. And, uh, repentance means turning away from wickedness. Some of you think that the poop in your life makes you interesting because you're drama queens and that's just awful. We're not here to have interesting lives of calamity. We're not here to make a great story about you. You're here to serve the living God. And the idea is if, unless you have the boring thing called fruit, you're going to have poop piled on you for a year, and then they're going to cut you down. But some people don't like that. Some people don't like that Christianity will break the laws of Moses for the sake of goodness. Goodness trumps, but people are indignant. What kind of religion are we shaping here? What the, the, the image that, that Christ puts out, repentance, fruit, goodness, Now examine yourself, because we're, we're followers of Jesus Christ here. We're not followers of the church, or the history of the church, not this church or any church. We don't think that it is any point to say, and I was in an argument just this week, with somebody who thought my argument was wrong, because I, it didn't agree with anybody um, in history. Which is not a real good sign, I admit, but you know, the PR qualities of that are, are, are low, but uh, uh, he did admit that it had a very strong biblical case, but no case in the history of the church. I accused him, I don't know what I accused him of, but it was, it was powerful. We need to have the kind of Christianity that Christ is calling for. The kind that says, you know, unless you repent, unless you bear fruit, unless you understand that this is about the goodness and love of people, unless you understand that, you're going to get your knickers in a twist about everything that comes through your life religiously because you'll see people spoiling the way your granny had it in her church. Or the way Saint so-and-so thought it might be good to do. In some ways, real Christianity, and we see this at the end of the, end of the story of the synagogue, his opponents were put to shame. Initially they were indignant, and then they were ashamed. Because real Christianity will put religious Christianity make mockery of it. You know some people who are really believers. You know, their life is... They might even disagree with you on most of the stuff. But you're so, you're so happy to be with them because they have repented of their sins. And they're trying to bear fruit and they're looking to serve the living God. And goodness matters more than law. Because we're under grace, we're not under law. 
those kind of characters put to flight all of the traditionalists, the law keepers, the non-repentant. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Well, that's a question that arises at this moment. And what, gent, what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. Ta-da. Well, both images. You can say, I see a pattern here. Really small thing. Wait. Everything gets affected by it. Now the question is, this is the, how do we, are we living as if this is the case? Because people really don't run to repentance, run to fruit, run to goodness. Where do they run? They run to someone deciding to do a church plant of some major ministry somewhere. That's how the church supposedly grows. It's the opposite of patience. This is patient. Patience says, if you have the seed of the kingdom of God, because it's like a mustard seed, it's like leaven, it's like yeast, you put it someplace and it affects everything around it. It grows naturally. It has the natural result. If you are a Christian, you will grow into being with and around and infecting others that are really Christians. But the impatient can't wait for this. They like the kingdom of heaven. They say it's right for me to approve of the kingdom of heaven. It's right for the kingdom of heaven to be advanced. Let's just go make the kingdom of heaven. What's that phrase in Genesis? Let us build ourselves a city and a tower. And so what happens with church plants? First you go grab somebody really famous and you get a bunch of people from his really famous church and you put them someplace where there's already a church there or you create a bureaucracy you build you hang out the shingle of the church you open for business you say okay the the organization is here now we hope to affect things now I don't think this is some kind of sin that I'm preaching against here but I think it's backwards Jesus Christ fixes people. The Holy Spirit makes them into someone who is. We're not trying to make an organization that will then infect people with being Christians. We're trying to have Christians, if you need to organize, and if you haven't been to this church before, you'll realize this church does not have any organization. None. We have walls. That is about the only thing we can say is similar to Christian churches. We don't, if we're going to have a church business meeting, it's usually I meet Brian in the middle aisle after church, and he goes, there's a problem with this, and I say, well, look into it. <laughs> That's it. We don't have any business meetings, we don't have any staff, we don't have any paid employees, including the pastor. So it's, a, you can do it, disorganized. We're hoping that you will be Christians, and your desire to be like Jesus Christ, we might have to organize some things. Like potlucks, barbecue, 
We don't want to put organization first because organization first says, let's make the kingdom of God already done and draw people into it. It's not like a grain of mustard seed anymore. The fruit of that sort of thing will be Christian in name. But often, you will know, you will see what happens in the kind of churches where the organization gets put on the ground first. Let the Spirit of God work it out. Then organize what you need to. But do the repenting. Do the bearing fruit. Do the goodness first. Meet the people that enjoy repenting, bearing fruit, and doing the goodness. And then if you have to set a time to meet together to study the Bible, that's the kind of organization you like. Nobody minds doing it. But boy, when you want to organize, what happens when you want to organize? Who is most valuable? OCD people. A-type personalities. People who care an awful lot about doctrine. And what kind of organizations do they create? You'd rather drive a nice pick into your thigh than, than get involved in it. But sometimes it's the only thing that's available. So it's not a sin, I just don't... I think, wouldn't it be nice to be like what Christ requires of you? Verse 22, on his way he went through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Because you know, when you start talking about, you know, repentance, you know, fruit, you know, goodness, that's what I'm waiting for. Otherwise, bad, bad, bad things are going to happen to you. And people are going, do you not know that you have offended me in this? And he says, yes, let me say it again. And then he says, don't you know the kingdom of God? What shall I compare it to? I don't know. Really small things, waiting a really long time. I know some of you, we all feel it. I mean, I feel it. There's a slight, we're a small church. But even with the guests here, it's, you know, that little bump up in numbers and voices. And you feel it directly in your lust for power. And I have a lust for power. I really do. I, have, I think I have a pretty good barrier against it in the church. I success, have successfully exorcised that demon. I do want it politically and internationally. I want, I, I, I want to be king. I have the beard. I have the height. A palace. I have a palace. We all like power. We all like that in our churches. We like to, so someone hangs out the shingle with a successful ministry and boom, we think that's what we're looking for. We don't want to have the sensation that causes us to say, Lord, will those be saved be few? You mean, I might not be in the popular group? Because Christianity, frankly, will never, ever, ever be popular. I know some of you might be post-millennialists. I am not. It will never, ever, ever be popular. For many, I tell you, he says, strive to enter by the narrow door. He doesn't go, no, no, really, just wait for that mustard seed and that leaven to get along a little bit, and then we're going to go gangbusters. He says, no, 
Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Because not only is this going to be small and long, it's going to be precise in its demands. You don't get to have easier ways than repentance and bearing fruit. Sorry. There'll be some. But once the householder has risen up and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will say, yes, because we want to fill all the seats. Come on in. Oh, no, he didn't. He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. I don't recognize the voice. And you will begin to say, we ate, we drank in your presence, you taught in our streets, I went to your Bible studies, I went to a few Christian concerts with your kids down at the gorge, and I, or I went to whatever else you Christians do. I even attended church regularly. I listened to the teaching, I listened to podcasts of sermons. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. Because what is the point of Jesus Christ? Why did Jesus Christ come? Because people are evil. Every one of us. Serving ourselves. So repentance. Unless you want the calamitous end God has planned for people who are evil. You had better repent. You had better validate goodness. And say, I am pursuing what is good. I'm not just trying to stay inside the lines because that's the, the minds of a, the worker of iniquity. It says, you ever find yourself in a question biblically? Someone says, well, the Bible says this is wrong. And then you say, but what if... Always making plans for how I don't have to do something the Lord required. When do I not have to do this? It says, love my neighbor as myself. When, what, if, what if he... What if they... Submit yourselves to the government. But what if they... No. You should be going, Oh yes, I get to submit myself to the government. My Lord requires it of me. You rejoicing in the fruit you get to bear for Jesus Christ? Because if we don't listen to him, we, we listened but we didn't hear. We listened but we didn't repent. We didn't decide to bear fruit. He piled the poop on us but we just didn't do anything. Right. We are workers of iniquity. And there you will weep and gnash your teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets of the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God. And this is like a neener, neener moment. And you, yourselves, thrust out. Not invited. Not welcome. Not on the guest list. Credit card rejected. I don't know, you know, you feel those embarrassing moments, you're standing there with the, the waiter and you've just decided to treat your, the young lady you're dating and you're going to scatter largesse and you're going to use the plastic and it gets rejected. You know how you feel. It takes the wind right out of your sails. You will weep. You will gnash your teeth. Because every other standard for religion, every play religion inside of Christianity, now believe me, you're going to go out there into the world the rest of your life, you're going to look for churches, and you're going to find most of Christianity playing at Christianity. 
playing some church version of whatever theology you happen to enjoy. And it will not be repentance from dead works. It will not be bearing fruit for Jesus Christ. We'll be about being involved. It'll be about holding fast to certain trendy or exciting things. It won't be accepting the indignation of the world. And men will come from east and west, from north and south, and sit at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So recognize that where you are, say, in this body, you may have been here one of the longest periods of time of anyone. So, I don't know how that counts for anything, but it is if you're after the Lord Jesus Christ, if it is because the fellowship, the love you have for the brethren is what brings you here. But if you're just warming the seat so that on the last day God will consider, oh, seat warmed for many, many weeks. You could be first and end up last. The standards are the Lord's. The things that we have to achieve ought to be set by him. He is who we follow. We have to know what our Lord requires. This last section here, verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. That's when, an interesting moment when the Pharisees were on the Lord's side. A lot of them believed in him. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then the last verse. This is the, the Lord was looking upon the, the city, the place where God had made his name to dwell, where the temple of God, truly the one temple in history, where the presence of God dwelt, literally. So temples are. They're houses of the God. And the temple in Jerusalem, whether it's Solomon's, whether the tabernacle Solomon's or, or um, Ezra's and then Herod's, the presence of the living God was located there, geographically. And there was a Holy of Holies, and there was a mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies, and the presence of God resided there. And the people of God that God had called out in 1877 B.C. in his promise to Abraham. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing the prophets and stoning those who are sent to you. That indignation, it sometimes bubbles up. That indignation um, makes them kill the righteous. Don't expect that the righteous won't have calamities. But they won't the relationship, you might say, to perishing in a calamity of your sinful making and perishing in a calamity of your righteousness making. They're both calamities. You could stand there in the Colosseum being fed to the lions, singing hymns. And you sing really well, and I compliment you. But, but you'll be singing hymns. It's not the measure of, ooh, that hurt a lot. Jesus hurt a lot. It's what you get hurt for. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Ask yourself, 
when you measure yourself. When you say, am I the fig tree? Has God been waiting? How long have I been a Christian? When did you get saved? How long have you been a Christian? My father always asked people, when was the last time you read through the New Testament? And people who have been Christians 20 years have never read through the New Testament. They've read through war and peace. They haven't read through the New Testament. They've read, you say, what's war and peace? Harry Potter. What else in this debased age do they read? Um, other things, other big books, whole series of books, and never the New Testament. How long have you been a Christian? How long has this fig tree been not producing fruit? Is it only the patience of God that is allowing you to have another inch of life to respond to him? The Lord would like to gather your children together, and you would not. What do you got going? Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you understand the kind of Christianity you have to be seeking? And you have to recognize. If you can only recognize play religion, God help you. The calamities are coming. The judgment is coming. If you can recognize what the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of God can do in man. The name of the Lord is expressed there. That is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those people who are in your life, whatever church they're from, who really are called out of darkness and into marvelous light and you have fellowship with them, those are the people you need to be able to recognize. If you recognize those, you're on the path you ought to be on. But if all you can recognize is the indignant jockey shorts in a twist because you don't like the way religion was done over there or you don't like what they're allowing in your church today, you don't like burlap banners with Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, hung from the wall, Whatever sort of reaction you may have, you haven't recognized those who come in the name of the Lord. So we, we will either likewise perish or likewise be saved. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for your patience, for the husbandry, the vine dressers that have worked with us trying to get our attention. always thinking of other people's sins and never our own, of which we need to repent, looking at other people's bearing of fruit, but never our own. Lord, we'd ask that we would think of our own bearing fruit. Do we tell people the gospel? Do we love people as we ought to extend ourselves to them? Do we do good? Lord, we'd ask that we would be the kind of Christians you seek in us, that the narrow door will not be perhaps crowded, but we would meet others there who are trying to satisfy your son. And we'd ask that your son would be satisfied in us. And in his name we pray. Amen.